I recently got back from the North Shore of Oahu, where I went to take the Big Wave Risk Assessment course. If anyone is interested in becoming a more capable water person or interested in getting into big waves, I highly recommend that you check out the Big Wave Risk Assessment group. While I was there, I hit up my old friend Leanne, whose couch I used to crash on whenever I would go to the North Shore. While I was there, I got to hang with her husband, Jesse Horton, who is a really interesting guy. So here are a few of Jesse's accolades. He is a sculptor, submarine pilot, elk and big game hunting guide. He hunts and spears a lot of his food. He is a sailor, mountain rescue member, surfer, mountain biker, and climber. I was like, dude, we should do a podcast together. He said, my brother Ben is going to be in town tonight, uh, and he's he's way more interesting than me. You should do a podcast with him. So here are some of, this is Ben's resume. Ben Horton has based his career on being able to go places that other people either cannot or don't want to go. From thousands of feet underwater to the most remote regions in the Arctic, Ben's passion is to use photography as a means to inspire people to take stewardship of the planet. Ben started his career with National Geographic by telling the story of the sharks of Cocoa Island. He traced the illegal fishing industry from Costa Rica to China, and as a result of his work, helped to increase the park boundaries and protection of two Costa Rican national parks. He was awarded the National Geographic Society's first ever Young Explorer Grant for his work, and has since moved on to receive a number of other National Geographic grants, assignments, and recently started starred in a documentary for National Geographic featuring his work in Thailand. He now hosts a Nat Geo series as well. So I was like, I'm getting both you motherfuckers on the podcast. So this is Jesse. You've here you got a shark and you're looking at the shark and like, oh, does it have an arch back? Has fins down? Whatever, you know. But what is a shark looking at? Do you appear friendly or dangerous to the shark? You know, or do you look good to eat? And this is Ben, so you can tell them apart. So I sit down, and this wolf walks around behind me, and he's maybe 15 feet away. I can't hear him walking up closer to me, but then next thing you know, I just feel this cold, wet nose on the back of my neck, and he starts sniffing up and down the back of my neck, down my head, all over. This was one of my favorite podcasts of all time, Please get in touch with Jesse or Ben. They are amazing humans. And without further ado, please welcome Jesse and Ben Horton. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So right. let me make sure that I get the, get this right. So diver, climber, Jesse, diver, yes. climber, sculptor, uh, Colorado hunting guide. What am I missing? Uh, submarine operator. Pilot. He's a submarine pilot. pilot. 
submarine pilot, um, boat captain. Okay. Um, he was mountaineer. Mountaineer. He was a pro level snowboarder. I mean, he's on mountain rescue. Okay. Sculptor. Yeah, I mean, I think you got that. Now, Ben. He was an underwater videographer as well. Underwater vi- yeah. videographer for TV shows. TV host for Nat Geo. Uh, mountaineer, climber. Yeah. Uh, diver. Uh, what else? What are we missing? Ice climber? Ice Phenomenal climber? kayaker, climber. Ben's, Ben's a pretty elite climber. Um, okay. Uh, pro snowboarder as well. You're Back pro snow- you're, you're Back a pro snowboarder. Yeah. I was. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah cuz you guys both grew up in Colorado. Yeah. And Bermuda. Yeah. Originally Bermuda then Colorado. So we got the free diving, the ocean sports stuff there, learning how to move, move a boat around. Um, that was more Jesse than me cuz I was a little younger. And then Colorado, so that's where we got the mountain sports, mountaineering, rock climbing, ice climbing, skiing, snowboarding, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Kayaking, whitewater. Um, so who's better? Jesse's better at everything, <laughs> but I put in more time. <laughs> So this is why I think we're somewhat equal. He has the talent. I have the drive. Mm, that's <laughs> what it is, huh? Because we, he's, the we, big, he's the bigger brother. You're, really Jesse, like, your older it, brother. Yeah. We really like getting in situations to see if we can make it out of. Make it out we, of. Yeah, if we can make it out of situations. I would rephrase that. I would say we really like situations that we know we can make it out of. But most <laughs> people couldn't. <laughs> yeah, because you guys got to do, Jesse was telling me, you guys got to do some traveling together when you were younger. You guys, like, your parents set you off and... Yeah, um, this some, is actually some... one of my favorite st- family stories, because Jesse and I were not getting along at the time, not talking, and I was 17 and a brat. He was 20 and thought he knew everything, had life figured out. <laughs> so my parents said, all right, well, we're going to send you guys on a low-budget around-the-world trip for four months. And if you haven't figured that out by the time you get back, then I guess that was the end of it, you know. But by the time we got back, I can honestly say Jesse turned from somebody I was barely talking to at that point to my best friend and somebody that I trust in any situation, the number one person I'd want by my side. Wow. Was there a point in the trip when that shifted or was it pretty immediate, like on the plane? Holy shit, we got we to gotta be friends now. I don't think it was conscious at least for me, um, mainly because, you know, we're, we're just brothers. Like we're just, this is a new, we were both pretty young parents got us these tickets, sent us on our way. And, but subconsciously we, it was us versus the world. I mean, you know, we got into Africa, Southeast Asia. I mean, it was, it was pretty wild. And I I give my parents credit for sending us on that trip together. That's very cool. But all of a sudden, you know, it it was us versus the world. And that created a bond that is pretty special. And stuff happened that I think a lot of people would have panicked. We got stuck in Zanzibar for Ramadan and had to figure out how to get a plane out. But nobody had access to money or radios or anything. And Jesse was sick. And then another time we got, like, left behind by the bus in the middle of nowhere in, in... Tanzania <laughs> like middle of nowhere bus takes off and Jesse Jesse's always been fast but he took off sprinting after this bus that was already a mile away <laughs> that was, that was, that was there was life. no way he was gonna was, that, was that the one that you, you yeah. might have maybe mentioned this yeah, the other yeah, night like all your stuff was yeah. on the bus and yeah. you started sprinting after it yeah and Ben's just standing there like put the mic a little closer worry. to your face the uh the bus is coming back 
Ben yeah. knew, but well, I, I didn't know. But all there was like a little stand of Africans there that were selling fruit and stuff, and they kept saying, "I swear, I, I'm probably saying it wrong," but they kept looking at me, going, "Japanja, Japanja," <laughs> and the, doing the hand motion of like, "Calm yourself." <laughs> so I figured the bus was coming back, and. Jesse at one point was literally running in circles. And the thing about that point was when I, I knew like, okay, I might be the little brother, but there are moments that I need to take control. <laughs> yeah. Um, you guys don't like, I feel like on the outside, most people would probably describe you as adrenaline junkies. But from what I've gotten to see, like I wouldn't give you that title, but I like, I would, do you guys have like near death experiences when you were kids or something? A few. Like I feel, I feel like you guys both <laughs> live this very, um, you like, like a very voracious appetite for life, right? You know, that's something for me that's always been interesting to think about because we grew up very conservative, um, and there were a lot of people around us who, for example, snowboarding. You know, we got to experience that when we were um, living in Colorado at a young age, and it was we loved it. You know, we, we did it as much as we could, but there were people around us as like, no, you should, you should back off that a little bit. And now I understand so much of it is just, it's, it's calculated risk. Um, you know, you develop skills, you, you work towards something and you, you try and accomplish, you know, push your limits. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. But in a conservative arena, we were, we were definitely considered adrenaline junkies risk takers i mean that's that's my take on it but i i try and and make it more of calculated risk taking i would i would say that if i feel adrenaline doing most of the things that i do something is going horribly wrong like rock climbing i never want to feel adrenaline rock climbing to me rock climbing is the furthest thing from an extreme sport or uh, a you know thrill sport because it is about control it's about controlling your mind conquering your fear i'm afraid of heights and two days ago i was up 700 feet um to me it is forced meditation you cannot think about anything else you cannot let the fear take over um all of the sports that we do are that way i mean i used to think that jesse was the crazy one for sure because he was the one that we'd get to the snowboard park and he'd say, I'm going to do a double backflip today. And I'd say, you should try a single first. And then he'd stick a double backflip, right? And then he'd try it again and break his wrist. But, <laughs> you know, like we definitely went through that phase and we had to learn where we fit in and what we were capable of. But I think in our quote unquote older years, we've settled into a more stable acceptance of what we are capable of yeah. mentally and physically. Yeah. Well, you get hurt enough times that you realize yeah. like, God, being injured sucks. I don't want to do <laughs> yeah. that again. So <laughs> let's calculate it a little better yeah. and figure out how hard we can push it without being and injured having, for half the year. Having those near death experiences. I mean, for some people it's a badge of honor, but I think that that's just proof that you've screwed up. Yeah. And I screwed up a few times. <laughs> I 100% agree. I took a photo of uh, the newspaper uh, the other day. I don't know if you saw this on my Instagram. The title was um, uh, Shark Attack Survivor on Kauai was also 
bitten by bear and rattlesnake. <laughs> I, I did see that. I, that's one. It was have a kid. It was a kid from Colorado who was, had traveled to uh, Kauai, and it was right after the storm, so it was super muddy water, and he didn't know. Right, he went out boogie boarding in muddy water, got hit by a shark. But to your point, that's not calculating risk correctly. I know what you're thinking right now. I, I don't. Was I don't. It Justin. Oh. Yeah, I was thinking about Justin. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> This guy we knew in Colorado, dumbest person I think I've ever known. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating, and I'm not saying that in a friendly way. <laughs> but like, he he's working out in Eastvale, and he sees a bear, and says to another friend of ours, "Hey, watch this!" And he just charges the bear like he's gonna try to scare it away, and the bear just turns and looks at him, smacks him upside the head, and knocks him cold, and walks away. <laughs> Now, his version of the story was, I got attacked by a bear. (laughs) I literally did nothing. (laughs) It was was unprovoked. I think he was on CNN, too. Was he? Yeah, like he got some media play out of that even. Yeah. Well, that's kind of weird, right? Like, as I said that earlier, like, you guys don't... I, I, I don't tag you for adrenaline junkies because I do extreme sports as well. And I think that there's this weird, like schism between the what the outside world sees as dangerous versus what people who calculate risk see as dangerous and mm-hmm. i'm guessing that both of you agree that, like driving on the freeway tends to be way more dangerous than most of the sports alex hummel uh, is honald honald right? honald yeah um he's one of the great examples of that for me because what he does climbing i mean i've climbed for most of my life and I can't comprehend doing what he does. I just, I, I can kind of understand it, but I can't come close to truly comprehending it. So for him, climbing it beyond my peak ability is like me walking down the street on a sidewalk. You know, that it's, it's so basic for him as I see it. Um, There's a couple things I always do when I'm about to do something that scares me. I see if I can smile. If I can't smile, I don't do it. I mean, that's, that's like, if you can't bring that joy up, there's a reason, you know? And the other thing I do is I try to think, is this a rational or an irrational fear that I have? Like an irrational fear is if you see a spider on the wall and you panic, right? A rational fear is, I don't know if I'm physically capable of climbing this route and there's not enough places for me to place protection so that if I did fall, I wouldn't get hurt, Right. So you categorize those two things and look at it almost scientifically. And that allows me to put myself in like almost like a computer mode. It's like, okay, that's an irrational fear. So this is what my body needs to do in order to get this done. Today, surfing, I haven't surfed in a while. I've been in a cave. I've been in ice climbing and I've been all over China, basically. I came back and there's good size waves right out front here. I was a little nervous. I knew I had the skills, but like... I had to just put my body into computer mode and say, okay, get one out of the way and then I can start having fun with it again. Yeah. You just start moving towards it and let your body take over. Yeah. I think that life can become a lot more comprehensible when you are able to differentiate irrational and rational fears. Um, and I think that like so often we're, we're not even willing to acknowledge death Right. Like I like how often like I I sometimes will talk about like taking an EMT course and we'll say like, hey, you know, if you learn CPR, then if someone falls down at a restaurant, you know, and and needs CPR, you can take it. And I've had responses like, oh, I don't want to think about that. 
Yeah, until that person's your until that person's your brother who's kayaking with you on some river in the middle of Colorado and rips his foot off in the middle of a snowstorm after sunset, and you have to hike him out four miles or whatever, two miles. Do tell him, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were kayaking. He went off a waterfall, went a little too far right, landed in some boulders instead of the water. Where was this? Cracked. Check out that scar. It goes all the way around his foot. It was. Obi Joyful and Daisy Creek uh, up by Crested Butte and the kayak cracked open his foot went through it and then it closed over it and yeah it was dark and snowing and his foot was hanging literally by one tendon and at that moment it's like yeah I'm glad I took those EMT courses so what'd you do um, I made a splint out of my elbow pads. I cut my jacket off, put that over it to hold it together. I uh, put him in the boat and I had to cross him above the river with my friend Sean over a 80-foot water slide. And then we got him across the river, and he actually hopped up the hill on one foot. And then we put him in the car and drove him to the hospital. Was that before or after your, your long trip together? That was after. That was after, yeah. yeah. Before even like leave them there, <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, when you're doing something, I find it actually really difficult to do scary things with people that I really care about, like family, um, things where I feel like I'm in danger because I don't want my brother to be there when I get eaten by the crocodiles in Costa Rica, <laughs> or you know, when I'm gonna free solo some route, which I don't really do, but like the last person I want there to see that happen is family. But at the same time, like he and I do more things together, more of the, the intense things that we've done and we've been each other's patient multiple times, you know? And I don't know. It's just, it's good to have that much trust and not faith. This is full knowledge of what he's capable of. Right. It It's wow. Like we've had so many opportunities, so many wild and, literally crazy things but going back to that calculated risk thought you know it's these are all doors of opportunity that we've gone through for various reasons you know especially in the last probably 15 years you know as we've we've gone from being adolescents getting working like ben's been a nat geo photographer for a long time now and the the opportunities that led to that for him were all part of this and you know, going through these doors of, okay, let's, let's go out and, you know, try and find some shark poachers and the kayaking, um, you know, practicing, taking photos on a river and then in the ocean underwater. And these things all tie together, you know, and they all lead to a different door of opportunity and they're related. Yeah. Um, It's interesting how, like how many decisions you make as a, as a kid, before you really realize the full impact of those decisions. Like I'm thinking totally on the converse side, uh, side, um, a kid recently OD'd on heroin here, um, in Hawaii. And, um, I've known him for a while and I'd known like eight, nine years ago, like him just starting to make a few careless moves, you know, like hanging with a few of the wrong people. And then you realize what a big impact those decisions back then had on the outcome today. And conversely, like you guys learning a few of those skills early on created Mm -hmm. these doorways to be in places where now, like to a lot of people, when you say like, Oh, I'm a Nat Geo photographer. It's like, 
how the hell did you get there? You know, you be I'm a submarine operator, and you know, you got pilot. A, pilot sorry, he was a submarine Some pilot. pilot. <laughs> Sounds way more bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the head of the ship. No, I, I completely agree with that. Aquanaut. You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, those decisions you make carry on down the road. You know, whether you want to call it karma, um, educated guesses, whatever. Um, those, those little decisions lead somewhere. Yeah. And, and that's an aspect of, of life in general that, you know, understanding it, I'm not saying I understand it completely, but maturity it, it all wraps in together you know um karma is probably a, a fairly decent way to describe it because it's it's not one action that leads to something it's there's always two three four things whether yeah. it be something good or something not so good did you both have a sense of what you wanted to do when you were younger like this or at least like this is the kind of life that i want to live like you guys are both very experience oriented humans right mm -hmm. that's i can tell that's yeah. a high priority for both of you is to have this life where you drink it in do you have that sense that this is what you wanted to do when you were kids as a kid i always would say i wanted to be a photographer i had other things that would pop in and out but photography was a thing that was the common thread through all of it i wanted to be a writer for a while um I looked older and had fake IDs, so people would ask me what I did, not where I went to school. <laughs> and I would always say I was a photographer. Um, and originally I started trying to write, but I would take photos to back up my stories, and the photos would sell and the writing wouldn't, you know? So I think for me, photography, like I don't, I don't feel another option. I feel a lot of things come from that, you know, but the the base thing that it's all built off of for me is photography, and I have always known that. Hmm. And how about you? I would say I had no idea where I would be. Um, all these different experiences now, though, I see how they relate to my sculpting. You know, my my you know, it's hard to call it simply a career because it it's so complex in this regard, like just the, the powers of observation and um, the experiences you have. You know, if you're going to put something into art, you want to have passion. You want to you put something, and that means you have to have lived a life. You have to understand some things. And I feel like I'm kind of getting to that point where I'm starting to understand some things enough to, to have a story to tell. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you know that story of uh, Picasso when he was an old man, he's doodling on the napkin, and, and some guy comes up and he's like, hey, can I have that napkin? You just do, doodled on it. And Picasso was like, yeah, 20 grand. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's a napkin. It took you a minute to draw. He's like, no, this took me an entire lifetime to draw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Believe me, I use that with clients all the time. Yeah, it didn't take me long to do that, that photo shoot, but who else could have done it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that valuing yourself correctly. Yeah. Like how many people out there could have accomplished that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like you guys have, uh, been on kind of like an accelerated learning program through life saying yes through all these doorways. I like that a lot. Most people would say no. And they, I'm a big of fan of the yes. And so like you always say yes, but then you add the and. So if it's something you don't want to do, you say yes. And improv, you're going to pay me 
$20,000 to get it done. Or yes. How often does that work for you? I'm definitely going to be wearing a crocodile proof suit while I do it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Were you both uh, interested in conservation growing up, or did that yeah. kind of come as a result of being exposed so deeply to adventure sports? Dad. Really? Yeah. yeah. I think I think from our parents, but um, I mean, in Bermuda, our family boat was sponsored by KBB, Keep Bermuda Beautiful, and we'd have to go around the ocean and pick up any trash we saw, and then Dad designed the 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 costume for. The matter got the litter, the litter critter. critter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd and go around to the schools and teach kids about you know pick up your trash and there was a jingle that went with it. I think it was a Michael Jackson song or something. Really? Yeah, we had this friend who was a he was like six six and amazing basketball player and dancer, and he would get in this costume, see so this giant orange creature <laughs> teaching kids in kindergarten stuff how to pick up trash. So <laughs> and he taught us about the ocean too, like you know, what fish to take, what fish not to take, how much to take, don't take more than you need. And and if you shoot kid, it, you eat it. Yeah, if you shoot it, you eat it. And we were just talking to, earlier tonight, the first fish I ever shot was poisonous and he just shook his head at me like so disappointed, you yeah, know. I found a loophole here. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's really stuck with us and it's where we get our passion for the ocean. Yeah. I find that uh, divers have a much more comprehensive view of ecosystems than surfers because when you think about it, surfers are on top of the water. Yeah. There are plenty of fish swimming below us, but we're not we're not visually seeing all the species interaction. Do you think that's also why surfers are so scared of sharks? Because surfers are more scared of sharks than almost any other ocean demographic of people that I know. 100%. Yeah, well, it's the it's the spooky monster in the closet that you never see, right? That was Steven Spielberg's yeah. mastery with Jaws is you didn't see the shark for most right. of the movie. Right. I kind of have yeah. to admit, though, I'm only afraid of sharks when I'm surfing. Hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. What is that because it's it's like you said, I guess it's it's, you know, I can't see what's under there. I had a great white swim under me at Zuma in California once. And when I saw it, totally fine. I could see his body language. I see I could see he was just cruising. He swam right under me. I didn't tell my buddy who's sitting right next to me, this guy Dino that I used to surf with a lot out here in Hawaii. And uh, after we get to shore, he's like, hey, what were you looking at in the water? I was like, oh, it was a great white. He goes, why didn't you tell me? And he starts panicking. I'm like, because you'd have panicked. (laughs) Yeah, but you can tell you've spent enough time, both of you have spent enough time around sharks that you can read uh, fish body language pretty well. Yeah, it's actually really similar to like dog body language or cat, like arched back, quick, quick movements. That's hunting. If it's just like swaying back and forth, totally natural. You're fine. I mean, if you see a dog walk out of an alleyway in a city in the middle of the night, within two seconds, you know if you're going to go into the next shop and hide or if you're just going to walk by. It's the exact same thing with sharks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a PhD in sharks, so should we have a lawyer make some kind of a statement about don't listen to me? (laughs) (laughs) But you've both done done, uh, underwater photography. I mean, spearfishing. You know, if, if you're trying to get close to a fish you have to think about yourself. So you've got to look in the mirror. And that's, that's something that's fascinating to me in this discussion is that you've here, you got a shark and you're looking at the shark and like, Oh, does it have an arch back? Is it fins down? Whatever, you know, but what is the shark looking at? 
do you appear friendly or dangerous to the shark? You know, are do you look good to eat? Um, are you spl- you know splashing around? There, there was a guy I was working on a, a show in South Africa, and we, I mean, we had I think there was eight tiger sharks around, ungodly amount of black tips just all cruising around us. And this guy kept get, kept getting bumped. He was getting this amazing footage of sharks really close. And I was like, how is he getting bumped all the time? Because I, I wasn't. And so I just, I watched him on the next dive. And this shark came up and ended up snagging one of his fins and running off with it. <laughs> but what I finally figured out was he looked like a monkey underwater. Like he just, his buoyancy control, everything. He was, he was just all over the place. And he was so focused on his camera that he had no... Um, no understanding of his personal body language, like how he appeared. He's hiding behind the lens. And man, he, he just looked like, you know, a lure to all these sharks. He had these bright blue fins and he's just swimming there. And so it just, it was a really good lesson for me to be aware of, you know, what do you look like? I, um, I think Jesse and I have both had a lot of kind of wild animal experiences and encounters. And the thing that I've taken away from most of them is, you know, they say, don't make eye contact with bears. Don't make eye contact with dogs. If you see this, do make yourself big. If you see that, make yourself small. But I think the most effective thing you can do is the, I see you and I'm not afraid of you. And I'm also not interested in you. So you look them right in the eye and you keep walking. Works most of the time, probably. I haven't had it not work yet. It's the same. It doesn't work. I'm stick my thumb up your butt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I haven't, I've, I've had, it's the same thing with people, right? Like, if you cross the street to avoid people, they're going to follow you. Yeah. If you walk through like your house is the next one on the block, you're just one of the people. Yeah. Or if you stare at someone yeah. for too long, they're going to be yeah. like, the fuck you looking at? I've been woken up by a grizzly bear sniffing my face. I've had seven wolves corner me in the Arctic. Like <laughs> Ben's wolf story is pretty cool, it, actually. Yeah, that one. We got time. Uh, yeah, but it's been in a few podcasts. That's okay. All right. Oh. <laughs> Let's get it. <laughs> Then I want to circle back around to some of the conservation stuff. Yeah, I think yeah. that'd be really interesting to explore. Well, this this was, I mean, it was related to conservation. That's why he's up there, actually. Yeah. So um, I was doing a two-month dog sledding expedition with Will Steger, an Arctic explorer, and we were documenting global warming, chasing down the Isles ice shelf that had broken off. Um, for Nat Geo? For Nat Geo. And it was on the last day of our stay in the Arctic. Richard Branson had flown in. His son, Sam, was on our trip awesome guy he'd flown in and he brought a bunch of bottles of wine and stuff so i grabbed a bottle of wine and i cross-country skied out alone about i don't know a mile maybe less maybe more onto the ice it's hard to tell distance out there and i'm just sitting there writing in my journal drinking a bottle of wine alone and then i start hearing our dogs in the distance howling and there's two kinds of howls that these dogs do which one of them is like a team building exercise good night good morning Ooh, you know the other is hey i see a predator it's like an alarm and this was predator so i look up expecting to see polar bears maybe wolves i don't know what and i see seven huge white wolves running towards me across the ice i look at camp there's no way i'm gonna make it i look at the wolves and i'm thinking to myself okay nobody's ever really documented wolves attacking a healthy human being. So I'm going to stay right here. <laughs> so the next thing you know, these things are just running around me in this big circle. And I love how you used healthy human being in the, th- in the third person. 
<laughs> I am the lens. <laughs> no, one, no one's ever lived to tell it. <laughs> well, like, people have been eaten by wolves, but they think they were already injured before the wolves got to them, right? <laughs> this might have been updated in the last 10 years. I don't know. But, <laughs> so anyway, I'm sitting there in the middle, and each one is taking a turn coming in behind me. Um, so as one comes in behind me, I turn and face it. It runs back out. One comes in behind the other way, but I never feel like they're coming in to attack me. I feel like they're super curious and just kind of like messing with me to see what's going on. So I keep doing this and eventually six of them sit down and one of them just keeps walking around me in this big circle. So after a little while of this, and I'm still writing about it in my journal, I decide, all right, I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to stay still, see what happens. So I sit down and this wolf walks around behind me and he's maybe 15 feet away. I can't hear him walking up closer to me. But then next thing you know, I just feel this cold, wet nose on the back of my neck. And he starts sniffing up and down the back of my neck, down my head, all over. And he just kind of rubs up against me and then rubs up the other way and then walks around in front of me and just sits down. And we just stare at each other for, it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably 10 seconds, you know, just us sitting there staring into each other's eyes. And then this wolf just gets up and runs off and they all take off after it. And I'm thinking nobody saw this. And then I just hear all of my teammates just screaming on top of a hill, like half mile away. They'd all been woken up by the, the dogs howling and had run out and saw the whole thing happen. Years later, I was at a wolf sanctuary and a wolf started doing that same rub on me. And the lady goes, oh my God, I've never seen a wolf do this to a person before. I'm like, what, I'm, what do you mean? What's it doing? She goes, oh, he's scent marking you. He's adding you to the pack. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, cool wolves are happening. Yeah, wolves are fascinating creatures, man. Yeah, you guys probably so know way smart. more about them than I do, but uh, just the impact that they have on the rest of the ecosystem is fascinating to me. Yeah, it's. I mean, back to the conservation thing. You know, it's right. it's a hot topic right now a lot of arenas and it, they they are fascinating i mean they're an apex predator you know they've they've been around for thousands of you know more than thousands of years gosh Millions. hundreds of thousands probably um i just was reading the difference between the coyote and the wolf you know the wolf actually originated in north america immigrated to europe and then back to north america hmm. um but there's the history of some of these animals is pretty incredible now what we know um, yeah. through fossil records and dna and i mean whatnot what's the most current cons- uh conversation about wolves today because i've kind of like passively been reading about some like they're in the news now of like should we reintroduce wolves to certain areas what's the impact that they're having like what do you guys know much about this they've been reintroduced um so you, a lot of your kind of northwestern states you know honestly from kind of minnesota michigan over um but right now it's it's really hot wyoming montana idaho um they're down into colorado now um you know they're not officially in colorado but but i saw one there like 10 years ago yeah people have seen (laughs) them there for a long time um but now there's kind of before you as a hunter um if you had accidentally shot one thing he was a coyote you wouldn't get in trouble now you will get in trouble you know so there's kind of 
recognition that wolves are in Colorado. Um, and just the, gosh, I mean, they're, they're so interbred at this point. Um, they're huge. I mean, some of the pictures, our of these. biggest dog in the Arctic was 160 pounds. These wolves were bigger. Is that because they, they're, they've they been breeding as, with dogs? Heavy, is that the they reason? They were definitely taller. Well, so why I mean, is that? So you, you have all kinds of factors. There's there's interbreeding over, um, you know, the red wolf, timber wolf, arctic wolves, which I don't know. I can't say that they're, they've interbred with, like, your red wolves. But you get into food sources. So look at the brown bear, you know, your grizzly bear, right? Um, people consider the brown bear, grizzly bear, and Kodiak as three separate species. They're not they simply have three different food sources or essentially like three different ecosystems that they feed off of. So your, your Kodiaks, I mean, they're huge, but they, they salmon for, you know, large part of the year and they fatten up. So they get much larger and the wolves now, you know, I mean, they're, they're going there, they're eating cattle and, yeah, and, and deer and elk populations are so out of control. I mean, it, it's been easy for the hunters to find them. And I think that's where, a lot of the argument comes from is the wolves are making the deer and elk populations more skittish. They hide more and there's fewer of them now because they're not just out roaming around in paradise. They have predators. Right. Um, so that I think is something Jesse and I've talked about before and might disagree on. Yeah. But I, we, so where, where I guide elk hunting, um, we had a wolf in Colorado, in Colorado, um, we heard it, we found track, didn't actually get a visual. So, you know, I'm going to throw that out there, but we, you know, elk season was going great. The elk were bugling, talking, um, you know, it was, it was just, it was normal and for, for what we know in, in Colorado and man, this, this wolf started up and we even heard it a couple of times. Like we, we get, we get packs of coyotes so they'll they'll kind of start howling you know in the evening or things sometimes and they'll affect the elk but this one night these coyotes all started up and then this wolf started up and it was something completely different i mean it, it was not even comparable to the coyotes and man for the next month and a half it was to to get an elk to to talk, quote unquote, you know, to, to bugle or to, if you cow called, you know, it was almost like they were staying away from elk that were talking like the real elk mm. were staying away from us because <laughs> they knew that we were going to attract the wolf, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Um, so that, that was my first encounter with, with wolves in Colorado at that level, which is kind of similar to stories I've heard from farther up north. So um, to backtrack a little bit, so a male elk will bugle to attract a female elk. So to, to draw it in on a hunting trip, you will uh, make a cow of, call. Is um, it more of like stating your space? Yeah, so in the fall is when the rut is, when they're they're getting ready to breed. And the the bull elk, they're they start getting all frisky and bugling and asserting their territory. And so the bigger elk, you know, they get their harems together and um, all their cows. And some of them get some pretty big herds together. You know, you might have a satellite bull that manages to get off, you know, one or two cows. But in the fall, you, you know, you can go out and 
the right time of day, I mean, just a valley will light up, you know, I mean, you have these, it sounds like dinosaurs sometimes. I mean, they're, they're these things what screaming sound, at each other. What does it sound um, like? Oh gosh. Can you do it? <laughs> no, not right now. Um, Just some more of that margarita. You, you get in, in these Aspen <laughs> forests. It, it's the most incredible sound. No, that's Chewy. That's a Wookiee. That's the Wookiee. That's my brother, everybody. Spielberg needs another Wookiee. We got one right here. That, Secret talent. That Geo doesn't Secret work talent. out for you. <laughs> Add it to your list of slashes on your career. Oh, Woogie caller. <laughs> he had a girlfriend one time that could do it as well. You, you, you could so just funny. stop that statement. At, he, he had a girlfriend one time, period. <laughs> <laughs> then he was, the Woogie call happened. Uh, sorry that's good uh talking about conservation here this is a serious topic no no we're losing wookies these days and you really need to focus on (laughs) when's the next star wars coming out star wars nine oh man um so so the so the the debate right now or so a lot of hunters are against wolves being reintroduced into certain territories because it's making it more difficult for them to hunt? Is that an it, oversimplification of the issue? Or? There, there's so much behind it. You know, it's, it's competition, for sure. Um, we have what we like to think of as nature right now. You know, we, we have what we're used to. But, you know, what did, what did it look like 300 years ago? I have no idea. I can guess. I mean, we almost wiped out the elk population in the early 1900s. Um, we have a lot of elk right now by some respects and we've reintroduced them into some places that um they're doing great but there's no wolves so you, you reintroduce um an apex predator that's you know that's competition for us that's why we wiped out the wolves to begin with the west coast of california used to have some of the largest elk populations on the planet there was a lake there that went from san jose to bakersfield i think and you could take a ferry and it made the entire coastline in that area like a Mediterranean landscape. I can't remember the name of the lake right now, but this is all well documented. And in the late 1800s, it was drained to create farmland, which changed the entire environment, made Southern California into a desert. And now the farmers are putting up signs saying, Congress created this dust bowl, yeah. give us our water. It's like, hey, wait a second. You drained one of the largest lakes in the country to create farmland change the entire ecosystem you know the elk are gone there used to be bear there used to be pine trees in malibu canyon like not that long ago people have huge impacts on their environment and we look at it now and we say oh we need to conserve this but this is a result of our previous mistakes there's theories out there about the buffalo not actually being from the USA, but having come down from, from Canada, I almost said China. I was just in China, (laughs) but the Buffalo came down from Canada after we wiped out things like the saber tooth cat or, you know, the giant ground sloth and the other animals that were on the, the plains. And once we wiped them out, the Buffalo came down and they exploded in population. You know, this is all in, I think Jared Diamond's book. I forget the name of the book. I read it a long time ago, but guns, germs and steel. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think that was the book this was in. And it's, it's just like, you know, we had this discussion earlier. At any given point, any species was an invasive species, right? But it eventually becomes 
the natural environment. So who are we to step in and try to mess with it and fix things? I think the best approach is a hands-off approach. Stop screwing it up, you know? Like, let nature run its course with minimal impact from human beings, and let's see what we end up with. I guarantee you it's going to be better than 100 PhDs out there trying to say, oh, this is, this is what needs to be where in the ocean or in a national park. What do you think about that, Jesse? Is this what the point that you disagree on? I wouldn't say disagree. Right. Um, it, what we were kind of talking about before this a little bit, you know, it, it is such a complex issue when you start talking about conservation because first there's this aspect of, well, what are we trying to conserve? You know, what, what is our end goal? And as human beings, um, we have very different end goals than whether it be wolves, deer, the saber-toothed tiger, the, you know, these animals that aren't around anymore, like, what was their end goal? Um, so, but at the same time, we, we have this capacity to understand and to, to study things and design a future. Um, and we also have morals, ethics, you throw all that into the mix and you start getting something that's really complex. Um, the, we were fortunate enough to like to grow up in this pristine ocean environment. And so to see what a healthy reef system looks like is something that I'll always, you know, I hope if I ever have kids, I can show them that. I don't know um, that we can find it now. I mean, I haven't seen coral reef like we had in Bermuda in 15 years. Yeah. But even again, like I just said, that was a pristine coral reef environment, but that's my experience. What was it like a hundred years prior to that? You know, so as our technologies advance, um, our abilities, you know, our communication, I mean, you, you can live anywhere on the planet now and study MIT essentially for free, <laughs> you know, they got free online courses. So our ability to communicate ideas and understanding about places as that develops, are we keeping up with the technologies and how we impact the planet? That's, that's kind of the direction I'm headed with in all this, in my mental processes, is just trying to understand like, you know, we, we have technology, we have abilities, but do we have the mental and moral ability to make these decisions how to use them? Yeah, well, this is the big conversation in AI right now, right? You oh, have man. Bunch, yeah. And I don't want to veer us too <laughs> far no. off into that direction, no, but, it's, but it's, it is related. It's the question of morals, it's, ethics, and technology. But the thing is, it's totally related now. It's not separate. You know, you, you put something on the internet, and it's, it's, it's amazing, the connectivity now. And AI especially, I mean, that's... That's one. That's a rabbit hole right now that we may or may not want to go Maybe down. Maybe in a bit. I want to make sure we stomp the landing on the conversation. Yeah, but it, conservation. But uh, it's totally like you said. It, it's related. Like, what if AI? You know, it's more intelligent than all of us put together, and it decides, "Wow, you guys are really messing up the planet. You're the problem on this planet." <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the fear, right? That's one side of the spectrum. Um, but at the same time, it's something that can help solve some of these issues and problems. I mean, we plastics you know it's yesterday i think it was was earth day and and it seemed like plastics are at the forefront right now of what so many people are talking about 
in the conservation debate and it's a technology you know it's saved a lot of lives it's made our lives much more convenient um, but there's this dark side to it and so can we just science our way out of this issue you know maybe but maybe not i think that's what a lot of people are relying on i've talked to a lot of people like oh yeah but by the time plastics really become a problem we'll have a solution for it yeah but that's the i I feel like that is almost like a an aspect of like faulty hardware in our brains like we want iron man to come along (laughs) so badly that like sooner like that's why this this guy boy in slot is so well well known is because he has this idea to create this big trash um like collector collector in the middle of the ocean that hasn't been created yet and he's getting a huge amount of funding to make it happen but doesn't really bring the conversation back to where it needs to be which is at the source like why are we creating so much plastic we want to do anything we can to not alter our life and have a solution yeah you know that's human nature so around the point of like okay well animal conservation um the and the hands-off approach of like okay pigs are on hawaii now they've been around here for a while let's just have a hands-off approach do you feel like that could further degrade ecosystems? Do you feel like that that okay. argument could also be taken advantage of by certain corporate interests? Absolutely. I think the pigs in Hawaii is a eradicatable problem, right? But now let's look at this on the true scale of things. What's Hawaii going to look like in a thousand years? What's it going to look like in a million years? What's it going to look like in a billion years? Maybe those pigs are going to evolve. The landscape's going to evolve. The plants, the ocean, everything. We're going to have a whole new ecosystem here, right? So we look at things in the timescale of human beings. But in the timescale of the earth, things change. Things are meant to change. If it stays the same, it dies, right? Now, I do not believe... Hey, why not just throw some koalas on Hawaii and just like, you know, you're, you're going out a billion years already. Did you have some mushrooms before this? I didn't have or what? <laughs> These super volcanoes. <laughs> like, wow. All of a Blew my mind. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a nihilist. I have to admit it. And I love mushrooms. I have to admit it. Portobello's. <laughs> no, you're on Chantrell. the right podcast for this. Don't worry. We go deep. But like, I mean, really though, you look at you look at time, right? There's going to be a point when our planet has evolved to its limit. It dies. It gets absorbed by a star. It explodes. It gets reabsorbed into another star. Makes more planets. Explodes. That goes through a few more times. Next thing you know, we're at the end of the universe. Time ceases to exist, either because it's expanded to the point where it's irrelevant, or it's collapsed back into a black hole time ceases to exist we no longer have past or future so nothing ever happened all right all right <laughs> time doesn't no you know in, in all seriousness like it's it, true yeah no i i agree with that um i i think that doesn't I'm mean gonna, that I'm i think call, we shouldn't care about what we do in this life yeah i i think the sphere of influence is a concept here to bring in that that applies very well um you know to to bring this to like um, uh, an idea that I'm going to back up here. All right. 
the, the sphere of influence. You know, I can sit around worrying about the Pacific Rim volcanoes and am I going to get blown up by a volcano this this year or next year or in 10 years? I can't control whether a volcano goes off in the world. Your blood pressure is more likely right. to kill you from but, thinking about but that. But I can worry about my tomatoes out in the garden. I can go out and water them. So there's only so much thought and mental energy I can give to volcanoes, you know? Um, as we go through life, we only have so much energy, you know? And, and so again, when it comes to these issues of conservation and whatnot, becoming focused, you know, educating yourself about the issues that are important to you and moving forward on those. And we all have different skill sets and talents and time requirements in life. So that, that sphere of influence is, is something that seems to me to be pretty important in this, like pigs in a, a billion years. That's way outside of my influence, man. <laughs> yeah. But what are they going to be in a million years? Right. I, I, I get what you're saying. They will have think... bred with koalas. <laughs> you had something amazing. Pig wallas. <laughs> He's climbing, um, climbing pigs. Overlying. Over Honolulu. <laughs> there's uh, wallabies. In one of the valleys over there. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently somebody had them as pets and released them or something. Is, wow. You know, the theory goes. But so, there's wallabies. <laughs> so what's a good example that you see right now of, of people controlling their sphere of influence in the world of conservation and taking steps forward? Like Ducks Unlimited? Or is it just the hunting model in the U.S.? Or is there anything that we... That either of you is guys anything seen? that we're doing right with is there conservation? Yes, no. is there anything oh. that we're doing right? I mean, look, <laughs> great white sharks making a big comeback, right? I think that's a bonus. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> no, that that gives us healthier oceans. That gives them a healthier ocean. Gives them more of a food source. We become less of a food source, right? You want more sharks in the ocean. You look at a reef. If it doesn't have any sharks, you know that reef is dead. That's basically how it works. Sharks, I think, are a good example of how mindsets are changing. For instance, you know, when Jesse and I went to China to trace the illegal shark fin trade from Costa Rica through Asia um, a long time ago, most of the people we talked to were like, oh, yeah, shark fin soup. It's really good for your joints. It's great for this. It's great for that. Didn't really have any idea what was going on. I was just in China for the last four weeks, and most people that I talked about were like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, outdated you know unscientific viewpoint of things now we know a little bit more about you know conservation we have access to the internet you know younger generation is looking at this and saying we don't necessarily believe what the older generation believed granted there were a ton of things that still weren't quite right but i mean every culture is going to have that we're going to hang on to things as long as we can until we we are faced with reality I mean, even far past until I'm far oh, past we're when we're past reality on a few things. Yeah. yeah. But I do think that like culture and spheres of influence change things very radically because, you know, if you look at gay rights as a great example of this, like changed in people's minds within the past few years, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I was in high school, I was like, you're a fag. No, you're a fag. No, yeah. And whereas now you're like, now you're like, who, you don't say that yeah, word. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bad word. <laughs> but like it changed in yeah. the culture very quickly as a result of 
the internet, which is right. good. I think that that's uh, a nice example of just the the scale of change amongst friend groups, and you know, with, you know, we're talking to each other right now, and there are a bunch of other people listening. So the information that we're passing along can change things at a more rapid rate. Like we're talking about, you're talking about <clears throat> rates of change in nature over millions and billions of years, whereas there are rates of change. But it does happen faster than that. It does. Yeah. In, cir- in circumstances, right? Like things do change quicker sometimes. Not all the time. But, I mean, look at the lionfish situation in the Caribbean. We were talking about that earlier tonight. You know, there are some fish that haven't figured it out yet. Still don't know that the lionfish is going to eat them. Other fish have figured out, hey, I can eat the lionfish. It's going to be a while, but there is already evidence of balancing starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very much. And the same thing with with corals, you know, Um, coral bleaching. That's uh, our friend Chip. We were talking about him too. <laughs> um, you know, he's a he's a NOAA scientist, and the the corals that you know, it's not all corals that are dying. There are some that are flourishing, but you know, over the course of so many years, you, you're going to get that. Um, it's, it's, all- it's weeding out the weak in that respect, as far as what evolution does. You know, whatever's most efficient is going to survive. Here, um, here is the basic breakdown of all of these human-caused issues that we have, right? First of all, I think all of them are population issues more than they are, you know, energy crisis or global warming or any of the other things that we say are the problem. It's a population problem, right? But what are we actually doing other than making it more difficult for our own species to survive on this planet? We will probably take down a good majority of the other species with us, but let's look forward another million years again. And what I see is no human beings and a paradise earth. (laughs) Yeah. Things are going to evolve to take the place of the things that were eradicated and earth is going to become a beautiful place again. Russia loves climate change. You see that Vice story that they just did? Like everyone in Russia is really happy with with how much warmer it's getting right. these days. Gosh. Man. Oh, that, yeah, the, the Saiga antelope. Like, Do you hear about that? What is this? The Saiga antelope. It was this incredibly... In, it used to be one of the largest migrations on the planet, right? And then because of poaching, it got knocked down to like a very, very endangered species. What part um, of the planet are we talking about? We're talking about like northern Russia, Mongolia, like okay. um, northern Asia. Because of global warming, a bacteria that has lived like like uh, staff lives on our skin. There's a bacteria that lives with on these antelope that has always been held back because of colder temperatures. But now that the temperatures are warmer, the bacteria has taken over and it's knocked these saiga antelope back down to the endangered species list, like almost completely wiped them out, hundreds of thousands of them in a very short amount of time. So once, think about how that's gonna affect us too. You know, let's say the global temperature raises one or two degrees. What bacteria or virus is out there that just hasn't been able to take foothold because of that one degree? You know, things are going to change big time. Yeah, I think it's a very humble approach to take. Like you were kind of uh, talking about mushrooms in kind of like a joking way. But like, yeah, I love psychedelic mushrooms and have 
found that they've served as like a master's class for me in humility and I think that a lot of these this kind of certainty that we move through life with can be blown apart very quickly with a psychedelic trip and I like having conversations like this because it's like huh yeah we don't think about like a million years out we don't think about just that scale you know we tend to be afraid of the bear that's coming at us right now, but not That's how our brains have evolved to operate. Right. That's, you know, we need to deal with the now faulty hardware. Yeah. AI will fix that. <laughs> God, we live in such a fascinating world. I mean, the fact that we can have this conversation, I mean, how many, what have we covered already? You know, just this conversation, everything I know. Um, I think it should be noted. <laughs> is it true that neither of you went to college? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, homeschooled. Homeschooled. Yeah. Yeah. Voracious read appetite. Read a lot of books. You, I, we yeah. both read a lot. Okay. Books and So from a young age, your, your parents got you into traveling and reading books. And adventure. Mom was a downhill ski racer. Dad was like varsity everything. Track. Track and football. Quarterback. You know, like dad wasn't the most outdoorsy person. Mom was. But the combination of the two of them just, you know, so the truth is they were missionaries. That's why we were in Bermuda. I think we kind of hold that little fact back sometimes. But, you know, they that took a sense of adventure. They were in Brazil. Then they got pregnant with Jesse and moved to Bermuda to have him in a, in a better country at that time. They were in the favelas in the 80s, right? That's kind of crazy. Um, so they had that sense of adventure. They just didn't necessarily have the outlet that we have for it. Now they had it inside of a, a particular box religion, right? We got to Bermuda and dad discovered spear fishing and free diving. And next thing you know, every day after school, we're out <laughs> in the boat, spearing dinner, paying rent with lobster, you know, trading lobster for, for meals at restaurants, the mechanic, yeah. like everything, everything, lobster, lobster. <laughs> <laughs> so, that sense of adventure and that sense of like, we have nothing, but we're going to live like kings. We're going to eat lobster. We're going to eat fresh fish. We're going to go out in the boat. We're going to eat at fanciest restaurant in Bermuda because I can bring in a bunch of lobster. You know, that's where we get our training for life was from our dad and our mom. Just, you know, definitely experience related. You yeah. know, I'd like to appreciate the quality of life opportunity well you embody the knowledge a lot better too than if you're stuck in a classroom with the goal to like gain information regurgitate it and then forget it yeah yeah like if you if you 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 snapped your foot off on a kayaking trip like "Mm, not gonna make that mistake again (laughs) right (laughs) really embodied that learning experience yeah (laughs) i was an f But yeah, I mean, I think that we have uh, learning all backwards in many cases. Like, and, yeah. and I resent public school for the fact that I thought I was stupid most of my life. Like, I really did poorly in school. I was not a good test taker. I had a really hard time sitting still. Yeah. Like, just couldn't couldn't do it. If my if if I didn't have the parents I had, they definitely would have put me on. We both Ritalin. did public school for a while, and. When we moved from Bermuda, which was one of the best schools in the world, Saltus, to public schools of the United States, 
such a massive change. They took me and first they put me in special ed. (laughs) Then they tried the advanced class and I did better. And the next thing you know, like a few steps ahead, I was in the advanced class of the next grade up and I was finally starting to get decent grades. (laughs) Like I just was so bored with the American school system. I would daydream and honestly, when they finally decided to homeschool me, it was because I was failing everything. And I was failing not because I didn't know how to do the work, but because I forgot to turn in my homework every day. I just was a zombie. Hated it that much. I think it's really important that you say that kind of stuff because there are a lot of people out there who I think feel the exact same way. And like, you know, we were we were talking earlier about like you get to a stage in life where it becomes it becomes difficult for someone else to be like, man, like how did you get there? I just can't imagine like you're a Nat Geo photographer. That's amazing. But I think it's an important message to really reiterate that like a lot of this was just grounded in the fact that like a lot of us weren't born in the right place to learn the right way for us, yeah. you know? And if you, and if you change the setting, you see people just take off. If you get yeah. them interested in what they're into, they can learn everything through anything. That's why I don't think that you should go straight into college right after high school. I think you should have 10 years of figuring life out, failing at stuff, figuring out what you actually enjoy, what subjects you like, and then say, Hmm, I guess, I guess I want to be an accountant. I want to go to college for that, <laughs> you know, or, Hey, you know, I want to be an ocean conservationist and a marine biologist. And I'm going to go learn about nudibranchs. <laughs> like find your passion and then go to school for it. You don't go to school to figure out what your passion is, you know? Yeah. It, I would, there's things now I would love to study, you know, and I, I read a lot about them. Like I said, you know, just, but man, if I'd gone straight into college, I, I don't know what I would be doing now. Um, raising a couple kids. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but, but yeah, you know, it's just to have the opportunity to, we rather, it's not for everybody, but we have just really had this opportunity to go out and experience so much. And, you know, those experiences now are what I get to put into my sculpting. Ben gets to put into the stories and his photography. Um, and as you know, the creative fields that we're in, that's really important. Um, you know, in, in the arts, I see a lot of people that, that spend a ton of money in college and they turn around, they don't necessarily have story to put into it. They've got technical ability, but there's something to be said for learning how to teach yourself. Going to college is a skill set where you're learning how to be taught. What happens after college? What happens 10 years later? Now, if you teach yourself how to teach yourself, you can continue that for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, so to this point, going back to we grew up very conservatively religious. And there was a moment in my life where I remember realizing that we were either taught to think completely emotionally about a subject or completely logically about a subject, but logically according to the religious set of rules and doctrine. 
and w- you know within a very confined box. Hmm, so and so our thought processes bounce between these two things. So if you said something that challenged me, um, let's say logically, you know, you like I, what about dinosaur bones? Okay, exactly. Perfect no, perfect. So <laughs> we were we were raised we were raised Jehovah's Witness, right? Now we were taught all about evolution, but what we were taught was not the evolution that's being taught in schools. We were being taught like an ancient twisted version of it that didn't make any sense, right? So we thought we really knew. And when we had these arguments with people about evolution, we're like, but doesn't it make sense that the eye, you know, how could you make an eye out of nothing? But then you go, you read some Richard Dawkins, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, (laughs) we didn't get the full story there. But we were working inside these boundaries. And as a Jehovah's Witness, we weren't allowed to read the books that challenged that, you know? I mean, I There's get no critical thinking like we were not raised. It's, it's almost it's, I don't believe is intentional by any stretch of the imagination. But critical thinking does not exist if you grow up in that spectrum. So back to you, Ben. The eye. Yeah. I mean, I just I think that I just spent all my brain power on that statement. And yeah, Will Ferrell <laughs> from old school right now. Yeah. Blocked out what happened. Blocked out what happened. Yeah, I was. Um, we both get so passionate about this. I think that it's, a, it, it's it, it, like, oh. look, cognitive bias, logical thinking, like how we come to conclusions is really important to think about because we all, like, I was talking to um, our mutual friend, Dr. Jamie Gove recently, who's mm-hmm. a, a coral reef PhD oceanographer, very smart guy. And, and good surfer. Good surfer as well. Excellent surfer. Yeah, someone who I want to get on the podcast. Uh soon but he was talking about what it takes to get a a paper published as an oceanographer and what the peer review process is like and he said it's it is all of your peers all the smartest people you know trying to poke holes in your argument Mm -hmm. and if it can pass through that fire only then does it get published that's Um, how it should be which is how it should be. Which That's is why, we, like, I, I mean, I how think... how we should look at our own lives. Look at... Uh, yeah, and as we... Um, as, as we've talked about before, like, we should have humility. We shouldn't have certainty about any, anything. Or we shouldn't, shouldn't have certainty about much. But I do respect the scientific process for that reason. It's just, it is a methodology that can be replicated. And it can be proven under... A variety of circumstances we have nothing better right it's not that something better couldn't exist in the future but that is our best method right now to figure out if something is true quote-unquote true or yeah. not i think that the number one benefit that jesse and i had from being raised in a cult i mean religion <laughs> as intense as it was is that we left. And it's not the fact that we got out of it. It's the fact that we taught our brains how to go from believing something 100% to challenging that, moving forward, understanding that our beliefs were wrong and admitting it, and then re-educating ourselves with what was true. Most people don't do that. You're pretty much locked in by age six on your belief system, right? Like how you think. We have learned through that experience how to know or admit that we're wrong and try to find truth in whatever's after that. 
And I don't think most people have that right now. I think that's the source You've of a lot of You've never been wrong problems. in your life. Well, that's because I have a high IQ. <laughs> <laughs> was there, when, when did that point happen for both of you? Did it happen at the same time? Or no. was it like Big Brother knew Santa Claus wasn't real? And uh, was it, like was, some it was no. Little Brother figured Santa Claus out first. But we actually never believed in Santa Claus. We weren't allowed to believe in Santa yeah. Claus. <laughs> we never got to believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> no, oh. like, I left mentally probably around 16 and then secretly around 18 and then at 20 i admitted to family and friends that i was just not not involved it, which i think was slow jesse on the other hand i'm gonna skip what i, I was tried. gonna say but i tried 24 maybe yeah i was i was trying really hard it was i've always had a i think deep sense of responsibility which is you know, what you're taught and, to have in a religion like that. Yeah. You know, and so I spent a long time with my head down, you know, just going deeper and deeper, hoping that you would kind of reach that point where there was the aha moment and the aha moment never came. Um, and some other things in life happened then, you know. What do you mean and by the aha moment? Just like that epiphany of this is it, you know, the, Here, here's you see I, the light. <laughs> here's what I really believe part of the problem is, is that Jesse and I, when we were kids, thought our parents knew everything, right? So we trusted whatever they told us. Our parents trusted somebody who taught them, who trusted somebody who taught them. And that's how religion works. You trust your pastor you, who trusts the next guy up the ladder. Nobody you, you has pass the answer. Sense of responsibility for the ultimate answer off to someone else. You're like, oh, I don't understand this, but he does. So, and I trust him. So I'm going to believe what he tells me to believe. I think that that's a big issue with the education system in general is that we're taught to believe an authoritarian figure, right? And you're not really taught to to question the premise. Right, and I think that going back to what you're talking about of learning how to teach yourself, really, what it's learning, what you're learning how to do is to question the premise. Um, I have a good friend named Chris Ryan. He hosts a, a great podcast called Tangentially Speaking, and he like always says this and he, question the premise. He wrote a, a best-selling book called Sex at Dawn, all about the prehistory of human sexuality, questioning. Um, the premise that humans evolved to be monogamous. And he did a lot of research around prehistoric societies, how we were back then, and kind of like flipped it on its head. And I think that the idea that we have solved a lot of these problems right now is just, um, it's just silly because if you look back th through history, we were, we were wrong about half of what we thought we knew at every point in history. And to, to have the idea that we've, fixed that now i like to think that we're wrong about everything we think we know right so newton the laws of physics technically was right right but then you go you start reading about einstein oh maybe newton wasn't right right but it's a spiral towards truth so it's getting righter hmm i like that a lot oh yeah and that that religious experience for us just to kick back for a second was just a giant step you know it I remember the exact moment I realized that I had lived my life in a bubble 
and there was a bubble outside of that bubble. Is that when you lost your virginity? No. <laughs> and, and, that but, sounds like the moment. <laughs> right? Exactly. Bubble, bubble popped. Um, no. We can't share this with mom now, can no, we? No, we can't. Um, but then within half a second of that thought, I was, I specifically remember thinking, how many more bubbles are out there? And that's continued with me in my life. Like, you know, the second you really think you got something together, better look around, like, because something's going to creep up behind you. Yeah. And ask yourself, the, I think that the real question at that point then is, how deep do you really want to go? Because it's historically and presently been very difficult for people to live lives who are really seeking truth and really engaging in those contentious conversations because they lose friends, Mm -hmm. they lose, they, it's like you, what's the old saying? Like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Right? It's a lot easier for people to just be happy and stick with a certain layer. That's that, that problem of, you know, living in the moment, like, versus trying to find that truth. I mean, I don't really know exactly how to phrase this, but I think that there is a a good portion of the effort that we put into trying to find truth that just distracts us from saying this is good enough. I personally have a mind that always wants to seek further and that makes me happy, but I know people who that doesn't make them happy at all. You know, they want to believe in magic. I want to believe that there's science behind the magic and I want to figure it out. They like, you know, one of my favorite things to listen to, to like inspire myself is, uh, a, a, an interview with Richard Feynman about the beauty of a flower. And he's talking to it was an the artist. Rocky song. <laughs> <laughs> that too. I just remember the moment. Put the Rocky no. song behind Richard Feynman. Yeah. But, so who, who is this guy? It's uh, He was one of the greatest physicists of all time. An incredible mind. And if, if anybody out there wants to know anything about Feynman, read Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And he was on the Manhattan Project. He basically invented calculus on his own as a kid to work out his own problems and then was retaught it in college and then said, oh, hey, yeah, I figured this out. And now we're using his version of it because it's better. So he's talking about the beauty of a flower as seen by an artist versus a scientist. And the artist says, look at this flower. You can't appreciate the, the beauty of it like I can because you're a scientist. And then the very abbreviated version of his response is, but I see the beauty in how it can eat light and how the colors are, you know, photons bouncing back at my eye and being seen in this particular way. Like he sees beauty on such another level of depth that the artist isn't seeing. But I guess my point with this is you can appreciate that beauty in both ways. The beauty is not limited to the artist and it's not limited to the scientist. We just both have different ways of achieving it, of appreciating it. That that one's deep. I mean, you could talk about that for a long time. We're going there, guys. We're going we, there. Gosh, we, we've got the things that are important to us to begin with. Um, you know, if you're just talking about a flower... There's, there's elements of 
smell of a flower. You know, it takes you to a place. There's growing up as a kid around these flowers. Or there's someone that taught you about fractal patterns, you know, in school. And so then you start seeing the mathematics and other elements in it, um, how it relates to the rest of the universe. I mean, you can go so deep in all of this, but the, the appreciation of anything comes from your understanding of it. And you, you know, you were just in China and you said you talked to somebody that thought they had once maybe seen a rainbow. Yeah. You know, the area was so polluted that like a rainbow is a foreign concept. I mean, gosh, right out here, we have rainbows every 20 minutes. It's crazy, you know? And, and so that but appreciation. But also appreciate the taste of a chicken's foot, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. I can't do, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, your, your experience, your, I don't want to just call it your education because that's, that's kind of a, in this discussion, it's it's something a little deeper than just a superficial education out of a book necessarily, but your your ability to appreciate an experience, um, it it's it's a motivator for the rest of your life. We're, you know, we're back to conservation now. Um, you you conserve the things you care about. Why do you care about something? You know, is it because you saw one of Ben's photos somewhere, and you know it. It just you discovered this new species you never knew existed and it looks beautiful so now you care about it um yeah yeah man i think that um you know what we're kind of uh flailing ourselves into right is something where that words are an imperfect words are just imperfect to describe what we see, they're imperfect to describe awe. This, these this, experiences that we immerse ourselves in and just, like, fuck. <laughs> what? This is life? This is just, yeah, yeah. Bleh, bleh. What is <laughs> right, that? And right. it's all going to be over soon. Right. Like, yeah. Now we're wow. into sculpture. Now we're into sculpture. But, and now we're also <laughs> in the, so I've been reading a couple things lately that this ties into as well, but I wanted to go back to Wade Davis talking about how language affects the way you see the world. Yeah. Right? So if you think in Chinese, you see the world in a different way than if you think in Swahili or English or any language, right? Because the the structure of that language only gives you so many ways to interpret something right now that's why i love to think about what it would be like to see the world as a dog right like how awesome would that be to just take the language away and just oh yeah person love <laughs> but no it's very true because once you put language into the mix you're putting a box around it yeah you know and you and put this another goes, language in the mix maybe you're opening the box or maybe you're closing it even more and this goes back to the other point that I was getting to with this was I was reading something by the, I think it was, I'm reading a few books right now, but I think this one was from the Dalai Lama and I hate religion and anything that's based on religion, but I like to challenge my viewpoints and learn from people that I might not usually accept things from. Um, but he was talking about, you know, you call something a flower, right? And it is this thing, but then you look at that thing and each individual part of it is not a flower, right? The petals are not a flower. The smell is not a flower, right? So like our brain has, has made this structure around it so that we can interpret it as this thing. But what is the beautiful part of it? It's our understanding of it. And you can use that same 
thing to look at a person, to look at ourselves. You know, I'm made up of a billion different little self-aware things called cells that might have some level of consciousness. At what point do I say I am me and I'm not some collection of other things? Like our egos are so out of control to make us think that we are these amazing individuals. The world is so much bigger than us is my point. What do you guys think happens to us when we die? <laughs> All done? Just I think we're done. Done. Consciousness. Yeah. What do you done. think happens to an ant when it dies? What do you think happens to an atom when it stops vibrating? I don't know. Like what why are we any different than a plant? I don't know. That that's the only thing I do know right now. I do not know. And that is and the only true answer out there. Uh, and you know it <laughs> It lets you live your life, I think. Um, I I had a health issue at one point in my life that brought death very, very close in front of me and made me contemplate a lot. It was just, it was, it ended up being so relieving to just kind of have that fear of death out of the way. Was, would you be willing to say what it is or um, rather? I had a brain tumor. Oh, wow. Yeah, 28 years old, had a brain tumor. And it was just like, okay, maybe this is what I've trained for my whole life. <laughs> you know? And, well, let's see what's next, you know. It was, it was pretty wild. And it, but that, that fear of death, um, again, back to the growing up very conservative and your very fear-oriented decisions throughout your life. And then to be confronted with something like this so immediately and presently and um, it just made you appreciate the important things and move on. Like the minutia, gone. (laughs) Um, Another book I'm reading right now is uh, The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And a line that I read today was, why are you worried about having your memory you know, passed down for a thousand years. Life is for the living. <laughs> that is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. I think that's beautiful, man. I, well, whatever you guys are doing, you're not being parallel. You're not being paralyzed. That's for sure. By, by decisions. You think deeply about the world and you're living the fuck out of life <laughs> and really enjoyed this conversation guys me too it's good to have conversations like this with my brother too like i mean he and i have been balancing each other out and challenging each other for a long time and that's that's what's so special about having a brother like jesse that can think like this if you ever need somebody backing you up ben's a good good brother to have (laughs) i wouldn't trade him for the world either so thank you both so much thank you thank you it's uh I haven't known you for super long, but I hope to. I know it's going to be a long relationship. We can ass, we can assume a sense of closeness we haven't earned yet. Awesome. Let's have more margaritas after we close this down. Hoorah! 
That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Compagnon de la Vie by Amadeu and Miriam. They're one of my favorite bands. They are a blind couple from Mali. And if you want to check out more of their music, you can go to my website, kyle.surf slash podcast, and click the link underneath the show notes. If you haven't noticed yet, this is an ad-free podcast, so I rely on people like you to make donations through Patreon. If you can donate 5 or 10 bucks a month to the show... I really appreciate it. Head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the Patreon link. If you can't donate, please don't stress on it. Um, there are plenty of ways you can support the show that don't cost you anything. Give it a rating on iTunes. It takes you one minute, and it helps other people find the show. Or share it with a friend. I don't advertise, so the only way that people can find out about this show is by people like you sharing the episodes. Until next time, my friends, thank you so much for listening. Get outside, give someone a high five, get in the water, because it's a beautiful world out there, isn't it? See you soon.
Thank you.